This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Brown. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. Part 2, Section 13. Ezekiel begins his books by speaking of a vision of cherubims and of a wheel within a wheel which he says he saw by the river Chabar, in the land of his captivity. Is it not reasonable to suppose that by the cherubims he meant the temple at Jerusalem, where they had figures of cherubims, and by a wheel within a wheel, which, as a figure, has always been understood to signify political contrivance, the project or means of recovering Jerusalem, in the latter part of this book, he supposes himself transported to Jerusalem and into the temple, and he refers back to the vision on the river Chabar, and says, chapter 48, verse 3, that this last vision was like the vision on the river Chabar, which indicates that those pretended dreams and visions had for their object the recovery of Jerusalem, and nothing further. As to the romantic interpretations and applications, wild as the dreams and visions they undertake to explain, which commentators and priests have made of those books, that of converting them into things which they call prophecies, and making them bend to times and circumstances as far remote even as the present day, it shows the fraud or the extreme folly to which credulity or priestcraft can go. Scarcely anything can be more absurd than to suppose that men situated as Ezekiel and Daniel were, whose country was overrun and in the possession of the enemy, all their friends and relations in captivity abroad, or in slavery at home, or massacred, or in continual danger of it. Scarcely anything, I say, can be more absurd than to suppose that such men should find nothing to do but that of employing their time and their thoughts about what was to happen to other nations a thousand or two thousand years after they were dead. At the same time, nothing is more natural than that they should meditate the recovery of Jerusalem and their own deliverance, and that this was the sole object of all the obscure and apparently frantic writings contained in these books. In this sense, the mode of writing used in those two books, being forced by necessity and not adopted by choice, is not irrational. But, if we are to use the books as prophecies, they are false. In the 29th chapter of Ezekiel, speaking of Egypt, it is said, verse 2, No foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast shall pass through it, neither shall it be inhabited for forty years. This is what never came to pass, and consequently it is false, as all the books I have already reviewed are. I here close this part of the subject. In the former part of the Age of Reason I have spoken of Jonah, and of the story of him and the whale, a fit story for ridicule, if it was written to be believed or of laughter, if it was intended to try what credulity could swallow. For if it could swallow Jonah and the whale, it could swallow anything. 
but as is already shown in the observations on the book of Job and of Proverbs, it is not always certain which of the books in the Bible are originally Hebrew, or only translations from the books of the Gentiles into Hebrew. And as the book of Jonah, so far from treating of the affairs of the Jews, says nothing upon that subject, but treats altogether of the Gentiles, it is more probable that it is a book of the Gentiles than of the Jews, and that it has been written as a fable, to expose the nonsense and satirize the vicious and malignant character of a Bible prophet, or a predicting priest. Jonah is represented, first, as a disobedient prophet, running away from his mission, and taking shelter aboard a vessel of the Gentiles, bound from Joppa to Tarshish, as if he ignorantly supposed, by some paltry contrivance, he could hide himself where God could not find him. The vessel is overtaken by a storm at sea, and the mariners, all of whom are Gentiles, believing it to be a judgment, on account of someone on board who had committed a crime, agreed to cast lots to discover the offender, and the lot fell upon Jonah. But before this, they had cast all their wares and merchandise overboard to lighten the vessel, while Jonah, like a stupid fellow, was fast asleep in the hold. After the lot had designated Jonah to be the offender, they questioned him to know who and what he was, and he told them he was a Hebrew, and the story implies that he confessed himself to be guilty. But these Gentiles, instead of sacrificing him at once, without pity or mercy, as a company of Bible prophets or priests would have done by a Gentile in the same case, and, as it is related, Samuel had done by Agag and Moses by the women and children, they endeavored to save him, though at risk of their own lives, for the account says, Nevertheless, that is, though Jonah was a Jew and a foreigner, and the cause of all their misfortunes and the loss of their cargo, the men rode hard to bring it, the boat, to land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Still, they were unwilling to put the fate of the lot into execution, and they cried, says the account, unto the Lord, saying, verse 14, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. Meaning, thereby, that they did not presume to judge Jonah guilty, since that he might be innocent, but that they considered the lot that had fallen to him as a decree of God, or as it pleased God. The address of this prayer shows that the Gentiles worshipped one supreme being, and that they were not idolaters, as the Jews represented them to be. But the storm still continuing and the danger increasing, they put the fate of the lot into execution and cast Jonah into the sea, where, according to the story, a great fish swallowed him up whole and alive. We have now to consider Jonah securely housed from the storm in the fish's belly. Here we are told that he prayed, but the prayer is a made-up prayer, taken from various parts of the Psalms, without any connection or consistency, and adapted to the distress, 
but not at all to the condition that Jonah was in. It is such a prayer as a Gentile, who might know something of the Psalms, could copy out for him. This circumstance alone, were there no other, is sufficient to indicate that the whole is a made-up story. The prayer, however, is supposed to have answered the purpose, and the story goes on, taking up at the same time the cant language of a Bible prophet, saying, chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Jonah then received a second mission to Nineveh, with which he sets out, and we have now to consider him as a preacher. The distress he is represented to have suffered, the remembrance of his own disobedience as the cause of it, and the miraculous escape he is supposed to have had, were sufficient, one would conceive, to have impressed him with sympathy and benevolence in the execution of his mission. But, instead of this, he enters the city with denunciation and maldiction in his mouth, crying, chapter 3, verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We have now to consider this supposed missionary in the last act of his mission, and here it is that the malevolent spirit of a Bible prophet, or of a predicting priest, appears in all that blackness of character that men ascribe to the being they call the devil. Having published his predictions, he withdrew, says the story, to the east side of the city, but for what? Not to contemplate, in retirement, the mercy of his creator to himself or to others, but to wait, with malignant impatience, the destruction of Nineveh. It came to pass, however, as the story relates that the Ninevites reformed, and that God, according to the Bible phrase, repented him of the evil he had said he would do unto them, and did it not. This, saith the first verse of the last chapter, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. His obdurate heart would rather that all Nineveh should be destroyed, and every soul, young and old, perish in its ruins, than that his prediction should not be fulfilled. To expose the character of a prophet still more, a gourd is made to grow up in the night that promised him an agreeable shelter from the heat of the sun in the place to which he had retired, and the next morning it dies. Here the rage of the prophet becomes excessive, and he is ready to destroy himself. It is better, said he, for me to die than to live. This brings on a supposed expostulation between the Almighty and the Prophet, in which the former says, Dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? And Jonah said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then, said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night, and perished in a night, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? Here is both the winding up of the satire and the moral of the fable. As a satire, it strikes against the character of all the Bible prophets, and against all the indiscriminate judgments upon men, women, and children, with which this lying book, the Bible, is crowded, such as Noah's flood, the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
the extirpation of the Canaanites, even to the sucking infants and women with child, because the same reflection, that there are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, meaning young children, applies to all their cases. It satirizes also the supposed partiality of the Creator for one nation more than for another. As a moral, it preaches against the malevolent spirit of prediction, for as certainly as a man predicts ill, he becomes inclined to wish it. The pride of having his judgment right hardens his heart, till at last he beholds with satisfaction, or sees with disappointment, the accomplishment or the failure of his predictions. This book ends with the same kind of strong and well-directed point against prophets, prophecies, and indiscriminate judgment, as the chapter that Benjamin Franklin made for the Bible, about Abraham and the stranger, ends against the intolerant spirit of religious persecution. Thus much for the book of Jonah. Of the poetical parts of the Bible that are called prophecies, I have spoken in the former part of the Age of Reason, and already in this, where I have said that the word prophet is the Bible word for poet, and that the flights and metaphors of these poets, many of which have become obscure by the lapse of time and the change of circumstances, have been ridiculously erected into things called prophecies, and applied to the purposes the writers never thought of. When a priest quotes any of those passages, he unriddles it agreeably to his own values, and imposes that explanation upon his congregation as the meaning of the writer. The whore of Babylon has been the common whore of all the priests, and each has accused the other of keeping the strumpet. So well do they agree in their explanations. There now remain only a few books, which they call books of the lesser prophets, and as I have already shown that the greater are impostors, it would be cowardice to disturb the repose of the little ones. Let them sleep, then, in the arms of their nurses, the priests, and both be forgotten together. I have now gone through the Bible as a man would go through a wood with an axe on his shoulder and fell trees. Here they lie, and the priests, if they can, may replant them. They may, perhaps, stick them in the ground, but they will never make them grow. I pass on to the books of the New Testament. End of section 13